When I was growing up in upstate New York, uh, I, I lived in a farmhouse that was rented by, from a German family by the name of the Sturms, and they, uh, they kept cattle on their property, and they had several barns, and we rented half a house from them, and it was a great place to grow up. Uh, about a stone's throw, a little farther down in the backyard was a creek that ran from a mountain down behind our property, and uh, an old wooden plank bridge crossed over the creek, and I can remember a lot of happy hours down there by the stream, uh, just catching crayfish and splashing in the water, and just having a great time all by myself, and sometimes with families, thank you, uh, with, with some friends. There was an old willow tree that grew in the creek bank, a huge willow tree that overshadowed that bridge, and I could see it still. There, at the base of that willow tree was a metal box. It, it was about yay big, and it was embedded in the trunk of that willow tree. The water of the creek half passed over the wooden box, and I always thought to myself, where did that come from? Uh, it was unnatural in a natural setting. It was a big metal box. For all I know, there might, you know, have been a corpse inside that box, for all I know. But it just seemed out of place. And yet it was a part of the willow tree. Religious notions are like that. They're planted unnaturally in our mind through an experience we had either growing up or something someone told us, or the traditions of the church we were raised in. And they're like metal boxes embedded in the base of our willows. And they're hard to get out. I'm making one more trip to upstate New York when my dad goes to be with the Lord, and I plan on going down to that creek and seeing if that metal box is still there. They're hard to remove once they're placed there. Religious things that we believe. And no matter sometimes what people tell us, we don't change our minds. There are people who grew up in churches that were legalistic churches of fundamentalism that were strict on what you wore and where you went and the facial hair you might have or not have. And those things are embedded. And you preach freedom in Jesus Christ, and it just doesn't click. Growing up in a religious setting has its advantages, but it has its disadvantages also. You tell people that Christianity is about an intimate relationship with a living Lord that's ongoing and present like water over that metal box, doesn't change. It's still a religion to them. You tell some folks that once you're saved, you are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And if they have been told somewhere along the path that you must maintain your salvation, water over the metal box, they don't get it. You tell some people, you tell believers that they're free, that they're fully forgiven, and their righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, and that guilt and condemnation has no place in their lives, 
and they will go to the grave as believers feeling guilty over their past. It's unnatural. It's a metal box at the willow tree. Not even Jesus could overcome that with the religious leaders of his day. Take a trip with me, if you will, to John chapter 7, verse 26. Let's see him in action in the temple, confronting the traditions and assumptions of men from their society and from their religion. John chapter 7, verse 26 is an ongoing conversation in the temple at Jerusalem. This is the third time that John is going to mention Jesus' trip to the temple at Jerusalem. Three times. The first time is in John chapter 2, when Jesus comes in, quite uninvited, and cleanses the temple. He sees the selling of goods in the temple. He sees his father's house of prayer being made, a house of merchandise, and I mean he whips the tables over, drives the sheep out, and cleanses the temple. That's visit number one on John's record. Visit number two is when he shows up and he goes into a particular pool and he heals a man who was completely lame. The man didn't invite him to be, didn't invite Jesus to heal him. Jesus just did it. So the first visit you have cleansing. The second visit you have healing. The third time he shows up in the temple, according to John, he teaches. That's a significant order to keep in mind. He cleanses at the point of salvation from all sin. And then he begins to heal the soul and the heart of man as that man opens his heart to him. There is healing that has to take place. And when that healing is in process, he begins to come to the life and rearrange the entire thought train of man. So that we think biblically. And the darkness begins to pass out of us and the light begins to shine. And all of a sudden in our life, we're not bumping into walls, tripping up, just messing our lives up. Isn't that great? He cleanses us when we get saved. He begins to heal us. And then he starts teaching. But, you know, you got to take the first step. Verse 26. In the process of his teaching, he is confronted by a number of groups. It's interesting to see that in chapter 7. Uh, his first group he, he runs into before he gets to town, his own family. His own brothers come to him and say, put a show on. Things aren't going well here up in Galilee. Head down to Jerusalem where the big crowds are. Put a show on. Obviously, anybody who does miracles like you wants to be seen. They didn't believe in him. He shows up in Jerusalem halfway through the festival. The Jews are asking about him because they're looking to arrest him to kill him. He begins to teach. And they're just astonished that he has the ability to teach like he does. He stops the Bible study and he looks up and says, Gee, why is it that you want to kill me? Awkward, to say the least. The crowd looks at him and said, Who wants to kill you? You have a demon. And then he goes on teaching and that's where we find ourselves in verse 
verse 26. Now some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not, now listen carefully to how they word this. They don't even use his name. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. They don't slow him down. They don't interrupt his sentences. They let him go. Now let me stop before we move on into the story and tell you that I want you to observe the sheer courage of Jesus Christ. All of us love a certain path. It's called the path of least resistance. But Jesus never took that path. He took the path of most resistance. He found his most trouble in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, common sense would tell you to stay out of that area. But see, he was going to redeem you and I. And so he faced it and he confronted it. And he faced those who hated him and wanted him killed. And yet, notice how he spoke. He spoke boldly. This is courage. This is, this is the grace and love of God for you and I to show up in the face of a murderous plot. So the crowd assumes that they're not stopping him. Notice it says in verse 26, Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Notice how much they esteem the authorities and they're kind of thinking about, you know, maybe they even know this is the Messiah. Then they say this. This is the height of arrogance, by the way. But we know where this man comes from. And I want to say, really? You really do know him? We know where he came from. We know he came from Lazarus. We know this is the carpenter's son. We've seen him before. He's familiar to us. Therefore, He's just a regular guy, just like us. It's the height of arrogance in humanity to look at God in the flesh and go, oh, we know where he's from. Wow. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. Now here enters the religious notion of tradition. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So let's check him off our list, because he didn't qualify for the Savior. There was a religious tradition of the day that taught this. When Jesus shows, when the Messiah shows up, he will show up unexpectedly, suddenly, no one will know his origins, and herein is a, a twist of irony by the author John to say this. They thought they knew, but did they really know? This was irony. They had figured out that he was a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. That was the extent of the man who stood before them. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Now where did they get this from? Let me show you out of the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, there is a verse in chapter 3. and I'll just begin in the first verse. Take a look at it with me. Malachi wrote this, Behold, actually the Lord through Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the first part was John the Baptist, And the Lord, whom you are waiting for, whom you seek, 
shall suddenly come to his temple. There it is. Halfway through the festival, the Lord. Do you notice the capital L? That is God showing up. The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant of what I have agreed to promise you in whom you delight, whom ye delight in, who you desire, who you want. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He's going to show up. He does show up. They didn't even see him. Incredible. But that's where they got it from. You'll suddenly show up. We won't know where he come from. He, unexpectedly, there he is. And he does all those things. Notice the last part of Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. And who may abide the day of his coming? Who takes it in? Who receives it? Who has their eyes open to recognize it's really him? Notice, and who shall stand when he appears? None of these guys in my story here, in this story. Let me ask you this. Do you recognize who he is? I, I, I know we're 2,000 years removed. But this plays out in every church service in all of life. Who can abide his coming? Do you understand who he is? Do you see it? Do you recognize it? Or is this just water passing over the metal box of your religious service? You see, I didn't get saved in a church. In fact, I got saved overseas apart from any religious establishment. But I'm telling you, when Jesus showed up and I saw him, it changed everything. This isn't about a denomination or a, or a non-denomination. This isn't about a religious service or a setting. This is about the Lord of life who shows up at the temples of our lives. Do you see him? Do you recognize him? Has the Spirit of God shown you that this is more than a Jewish carpenter? More than a man of history. This is the Lord of all might. This is God almighty in the person of Jesus Christ. Continuing on in the story in verse 28. I love this because Jesus doesn't ignore the muttering of the crowds. He kind of alters his message to what the people are talking about. Don't you love that? Throw the notes away, man. Answer the questions that people are asking. And so he brings it up. Here's another elephant. Dumbo shows up at the temple again. Get the elephant out of the end of the room. Look at verse 28. 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I came from. Now, we weren't there to hear the inflection in his voice. Commentators and scholars and theologians are divided on this point. The majority of him believe that he's just saying, yeah, you know me. You know I'm from Nazareth, sure. There's a minority who believe he was being a bit sarcastic. Oh, you know me? You know where I'm from? Really? I lend to the majority on this case, but it's interesting. We weren't there. 
We couldn't hear the inflection in his voice. We don't know whether to put a period or a question mark at the end of the sentence. But anyway, those who translated it decided to put a period. Either one works. Notice what he says. Notice the twist and changing and turning in the conversation. This is very important. When you listen to the teachings of Jesus Christ and he responds to people's questions, watch the turning, that, because he's going to turn the discussion into a new direction. He rarely answers the question like they're asking because he wants them in their mind to go somewhere different than they want to go. Do you understand? There's a change in conversation. Look with me at, at verse 28. You know me, and you know where I came from, but I have not come on my own accord. He, he doesn't just simply talk about coming from heaven. He infers a relationship with someone else who sent him. Do you see the change, the altering, if you will, of the discussion? He says, I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him, you don't know. I love that, don't you? There's someone who sent me. All of a sudden, he connects not necessarily his particular origin, but his mission in coming and the fact that he comes from someone else as a voice for that someone. Notice as it goes on. He who sent me is true. And him, you do not know. I know him, and I came from him. He sent me. Now, when it says he came from me, it is the idea of coming out from someone, out of someone. It's not the idea of Jesus going to get a message from heaven and then coming back. His origin was the Father himself. Changes it completely, doesn't it? makes them recognize that there is the God of Israel and I came from him. He sent me. So this, this, this just bubbles the whole thing. This just, the hair rises on the backs of their necks in verse 30. And so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour was not yet come. You need to know that. The restraining power of God kept them, those men at a distance. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him. There was this invisible shield up, like Star Trek. You just throw out that, some of you know what I'm talking about, that, that force field. They just bumped into it and backed up. There's a force field around the children of God. Do you know that? They can't touch us. Until the Father says they can touch us. We don't live in a country of persecution. But we may someday. We'll talk about more of that at the end. But I'm telling you, man, they can't come near your house. They can't touch you until the Father says it's okay. So they, they wanted it so bad they could taste it. Couldn't touch them. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. Now, I don't believe that was salvation. I believe they just believed perhaps he was the Messiah. You'll find the same crowd six months later, or not the same crowd, but a crowd in Jerusalem crying for his crucifixion. 
So this was not necessarily a saving faith. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The whole basis of decision of, of, of if it was the Messiah was how many miracles can the guy pull off. You see, that's, that's not the deal. Verse 32, we'll go down to verse 36. Follow with me, we'll run through the narrative. And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, so the officers, temple officers, these aren't Romans, these are Jewish temple officers, they come officially to take him in. And he looks at them and says this, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him that sent me. You will in the future seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Wow. You think on your timetable you're going to take me in and arrest me as if I was just a man. I'm only going to be with you a little longer, and I'll make the decision of how longer that is, not you. And the time period that you can come to me, watch this, is a little while. It's not long. And when he goes away, he says, you'll try to come to me, you won't be able to. Wow. Let that sink in. The time to come to Jesus is a little while. It is not long. And if you don't come when you can come, and then you try to come later, it says you will seek me, you'll not find me. We'll talk more about that at the end. Verse 35. The Jews were confused with this. They said to each other, where does this man intend to go that we will not be able to find him? Does he intend to go to the the dysphoria among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you shall seek me and you shall not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. There's so much, there's so many metal boxes at this willow tree, it's ridiculous. No wonder Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Look at the confusion all over the place. Nobody's getting this thing. If you get it today, it's because the Spirit of God showed it to you. Maybe the Spirit of God's shown it to you right now. Hmm. Do you know the greatest hindrance is no, of knowing Christ is that you think you know Him? That's the biggest block. The hardest person to get saved is a person that's saved. Do you know that? Think about that. In the South, everybody's saved. It goes along with sweet tea and apple pie, doesn't it? And fried chicken. Everybody's a believer, man. It's just un-American not to be a believer. Well, the greatest hindrance to knowing Christ 
is you think you know him. The greatest hindrance for believers in intimacy with Jesus Christ is to think that you've learned everything there is to learn about him and you know it all. You've heard it before. You've heard all the sermons. Man, if I could just get to noon, I can get out of here and really have some fun. If I can just get out of this service, I'll be, I'll be free for what, six days. Yeah, and then we've got to do this thing again. I've learned it all. I've heard it all. I know it all. Do you know that's why relationships die with other human beings? Just when I think I've known everything I, there is to know about Karen, I learn something brand new that just throws me for a loop. It's all about seeing the miracle before you. It's all about seeing Christ like you've never seen him before and knowing him like you've never known him before and walking him deeper than you've ever walked with him before and reaching plateaus. Sometimes you come upon a, an understanding of Christ where you realize, I haven't even scratched the surface of this thing. But before you get to that place, you're thinking, you know, we're done with this. Let's go make some pizza. You know, let's pick up our next hobby. Number two, the only way to know the Father, I know you've heard this before, but I want you to think about that. The only way you'll ever know God the Father is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, you don't know the Father, but I know the Father. So if I want to know the Father, it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how I know. I want, to, I want to bring up something about our society and the direction of our country and the world that we live in. Do you understand how increasingly unpopular it is for we who believe in Christ to say that Christ is the only way? That there is no God but the God of the Bible? When you live in a culture and society where, where private conversations in people's homes are being recorded and plastered upon all the media... No matter how stupid those conversations are, the fact that the rage of the entire nation is against those who hear private conversations and they're being recorded, do you understand how short a step it is to the next level of those of us who say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and that the Muslims are wrong, the Jehovah Witnesses are wrong, the Mormons are a cult, the Hindus are of Satan, do you understand when we, because if you believe Jesus is the only way to the Father, every other way to, to what they call God is error and from Satan himself. Do you understand that? You, you, you best be very settled in your mind because they will start talking about this being hate speech. They will call you bigoted for this. But until my dying breath, until I go to the grave or he comes back for me, I will echo the words of my Savior who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. It puts Jesus Christ in the very center of all the universe. It puts him in his elevated position as God Almighty.
It portrays him in his true light that he is God in the flesh. And we believe. We believe that he came and was crucified for us. We believe he was buried and rose again. We believe through the shedding of his blood is the forgiveness of our sins. We believe that once we place faith in Christ, we are in Christ and not in Adam any longer. We believe that he's coming literally soon in the sky. We believe these doctrines, but we believe it as a central doctrine of the teaching of Christ. Not the teachings that you can pick and choose. It is him. And it is all that he said. It is not a smorgasbord to choose from. It is a banquet table of which you imbibe everything. And when he says, you don't know God. You don't know the one that's true. I know him. I came out from him. I am sent by him. It puts him in the glory of the position of where he is. In truth and reality. So please, fellow believer, get that settled in your mind because you will be challenged in these things.